So the last, uh, if you have a Bible, you can open it to Romans. We're at the very end of chapter 1. And we're about a month into our series here, our study, as we go through Romans. And um, these last few weeks have been a little rough. They've been a little rough. Romans starts out, uh, as Paul makes the case for the gospel, things, it seems a little bit like a downer. Uh, several weeks ago, we started by talking about God's wrath. Uh, that's always a feel-good thing to spend some time in. Uh, last week, Pastor Matt talked about um, idolatry. And there's something to understand about, I think, the, the way that we're talking about these things and, and really why we're talking about them as we talk about Romans. Why, why these things that, um, that Paul is saying to the church in Rome, why we would sit here 2,000 years later and we would talk about these things. And it's because when uh, we talk here about God's wrath, for example, we're not just here to have a discussion about this concept called the wrath of God. You know, what does this book say about this thing? We're talking about the fact that God's wrath is a reality for each and every single human being on earth today. When we talk about um, idols last week, and Pastor Matt is uh, walking us through what it looks like for us to exchange the truth of God, who he is, for something else, this isn't just us uh, trying to talk about this interesting thing that happens in some cases with some people, but the reason that we're talking about it is because what we talked about was that every single person in this room and outside of this room is prone to create idols out of things and worship them in the place of God. That is, that is a thing that we seem bent toward doing as people. And so this week, as we continue to talk about this, about, about what it looks like for us to exchange the truth of God for something else, we have this uh, we, we look at this part of the Bible, we look at this part of Romans at the end of Romans chapter 1 in the same way that we've looked at everything else. Uh, we look at it because of what it, it tells us about the world in which we live and what it tells us about us. What this has to say, not just about you, but about me. And don't get me wrong, I like the stuff it has to say about other people, a lot more than the stuff it has to say about me. But... The truth is, that is the spirit in which God um, and the Holy Spirit inspired the writers of the Bible, uh, those who wrote these things down, and Paul himself. Uh, it is in the spirit of, uh, see in this something that applies to each and every one of you, not just something about those in the outside world. Uh, if you have a Bible and you want to open it to where we're at in Romans, we're going to be in Romans 1, 26-32. As we end chapter 1 in Romans, and we'll put it up on the screen as we read through it, and then as we spend some time walking through it here. I should probably open up my Bible. That will help me tremendously. Romans 1, 26 through 32 says this, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, 
God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. We'll stop right there. It's pretty heavy stuff. And what we read here, and like I said, this really is a huge continuation of what we talked about last week and the week before, uh, when Paul begins with, <coughs> when he begins with, for this reason, okay, for this reason, well, what is that reason, right? This traces us all the way back before last week, which we talked about the reason, to even the week prior to that, which is that God has made himself known to us through his creation to a degree that it is clear that there's an author behind all of this, that you and I aren't just here on our own Um, out of chance for no other reason, and that that author, that creator is involved in what it is that's going on, cares about what happens in this world. But because we, mankind, uh, Romans tells us, exchange the truth of God for a lie, that is the reason. That thing then becomes the reason why man does a bunch of other stuff. And what we looked at last week was, for this reason, because we exchanged the truth of God for a lie, uh, the, uh, the way that we first did that was we exchanged the image of God, who God is, uh, who we worship, who we bow down to, who we submit to and say, you are the ruler of my very life. Man has instead exchanged the truth of that for images created, idols, things that we worship that we know ultimately come from us, right? And what we talked about last week was uh, these aren't just physical statues, but they are as temporary and powerless as physical statues. And they are created by the hands of people uh, in the same way because these things like money, like satisfaction and pleasure, like the, 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 even the relationships that we have in our lives, the ambitions that we seek to live after, all of these things ultimately become the idols that we bow down to and we exchange God for these things. Why? Because even though he's made himself known to us, mankind has said, I turn from that and I seek to believe in something else. For this reason, we begin our passage this morning, we read that God gave them up to dishonorable passions, okay? Them being people, being everyone. Okay, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. So, Uh, The first thing that we see here that Paul's walking us through in something that is happening, he's explaining the world around us. He's essentially saying, here's why things are the way that they are, and here is how they have gotten to the place that they are. And uh, nobody really gets off the hook, in case you haven't noticed, for the last month. Because he says that everybody is ultimately guilty of these exchanges of the truth of God for something else. As he explains what happens that leads us to where we find ourselves today, he says that God gave them up to dishonorable passions. 
So you translate this word gave up, and this is exactly what you would say when someone gives something up to a rightful owner. You know, kind of like uh, maybe you find something, you know, on the street, and then you find out that it belongs to someone. Uh, if you're my kids, this is every dog you've ever found roaming the neighborhood, right, uh, that, uh, that we desperately want to keep for ourselves and are not very good at finding the owners because we, you know, we would like to keep this dog. Never mind the fact that there's some poor person out there crying looking for it, right? The person, we get a hold of them, we find them, they come to get their dog, and we give this thing over to its rightful owner. That is what this language speaks to. So, interestingly enough, what Paul's saying here is that, first, that God gave them up, gave people up to something that is almost like their rightful owner at that point. But it is not a good thing. It is their passions. So, the first thing we read about here, as Paul explains how things are the way that there are in the world in which we live today, and the very lives and the things that we struggle through, is this. He says, God has given us over to our passions. God has recognized that the passions that drive man are strong and man doesn't seem to want to fight them. And so God has said, ultimately, at a point in time, he said, I'm going to give you over to these dishonorable passions. They're not good passions, okay? These are lusts. These are desires. These are the things that we want, really, really want, but they are not ultimately good for us. You see, there are things that we are tempted to do constantly, common temptations to man, and we know that they're not good, and we know that we shouldn't do them, but we also know that people will do them. People have done them, people will do them, and people will continue to do them, right? People will continue to gossip. People will continue to start sentences with, I know I shouldn't say this, but, and then finish the sentence, right? People will continue to be envious, right? People will continue to want things that other people don't, that other people have and want them more. People will be prone to strife. People will go out and get drunk on Saturday night and want to go to church on Sunday morning, and this will happen again and again and again. This isn't new, and this isn't stopping really anytime soon, because these are the things that people do again and again and again that are wrong. What, we, what is different is when uh, rather than do a thing and say, this is not a good thing, but it is a thing that I'm doing or that that person has done and I'm going to not do it anymore, changing the definition of a thing and saying ultimately that that thing is now good, that that thing is now okay. You see, what Paul is describing, this thing where God gives over people to their passions, their desires, is that he ultimately, the act of that giving over, what changes in that that is so significant for us is that now rather than people struggling with things that are not good, the things themselves are, are redefined. The things themselves, the passions themselves become okay. And this is exactly what happened. This is exactly what was happening in the Roman Empire. This is exactly what had happened in, in every group of people that had ever lived on the planet Earth, including the Israelites, as they struggled against what God wanted for them again and again and again. God would hand over people to these passions that they were so beholden to that it was as though they belonged more to those things than to God himself. God said, fine, then here you go. A good way to think about it is this. Imagine there's a, there's a boat and it's sitting in a, in a river and the river current is getting stronger and stronger. God is standing there on shore holding that boat saying, I've got you, I'm holding on to you, and as strong as the current gets, 
which is all of these passions and these things that, that we ultimately desire, that we want to do, that are happening in the world around us, that there's a point at which God says, I'm letting go. I'm letting go. And uh, yeah, you could get out some oars and you could try to, you know, uh, row against the current and get back to where he is. But ultimately, God says, I'm letting you go and you will now go where this takes you. And the end of the current is probably some bumpy rapids, probably a waterfall that's going to hurt you and might even destroy you. You see, ultimately, God says, according to Paul, you are released to these passions, these things that you care about so much. We are driven by passion. We care so much about it. But Paul doesn't seem to be painting it in a positive light. Paul is not talking about releasing people to fulfill their potential, is he? He's talking about passions in a negative way. He's talking about what it looks like for God to say, you know what, go for it. And people do. And the result, he says, is very, very bad for us. Paul's painting a picture of a world where the things of God don't make as much sense as they should. Things are beginning to get blurry. They're beginning to be less clear. Why? Because of what happens when God releases us, when he lets us go, turns us over to the passions, the desires that we have. What then happens in our lives, in our families, in the world around us is a dramatic shift. And that is what Paul is speaking to. You see, when we talked before <coughs> about when we talked before about God being evident in creation, and saying, you know, we should see him, and it's clear that we see him. You know, we talked about the fact that so many people look at that and say, but you know, I got to be honest, it's hard for me to see God and creation the way other people talk about it sometimes. That it sometimes does feel to people like looking at animals on the clouds or something. That one person might see a bunny, but you just see a cloud. Well, part of the reason for that, according to Paul, is that what has happened is that since God has done this, that the world has actually become a darker place. He says that as the world has become a darker place and as things have changed generation after generation, then ultimately what has happened as a result is that it's gotten harder and harder for us to see what is good. That it is more difficult for us to see what we could have seen potentially, what we did see before. And this is Paul describing the world in which the people living in Rome found themselves. Rome was a place filled with passions. Romans is pointing us, through Paul and his writing, to the consequences of this being turned over to our passions. We generally think of passions as being a good thing. The Bible doesn't always describe them that way. In James, we read this, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? It is not this. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. To spend it on what? On your passions. According to uh, James, passions don't make a whole lot of logical sense. Our hearts can want things that are completely different. I can want to be a dad and wake up tomorrow and not want to do the things a dad's supposed to do. My heart longs to be good and committed to that thing, but my heart also longs for a few other things. And I can't pursue both. 
I just simply cannot. According to James, the reason that we battle and war and deal with the struggles in our lives is less because of what's going on out there. And it is more because of the passions that battle inside of us, within us. It's this idea that if you're left to your passion, all of the passions that you have, that it will almost eat you alive. It will consume you as you try to chase those things. Rather than that being left to your passions and handed over, those things will free you up to ultimately do better. Do you see how these are two fundamentally different ways of looking at the desires and the longings, the deepest longings that we have within our own hearts? Romans is pointing us to a truth that we do not want to face, and the truth is this, that the things that we hate the most are often the results of the things that we love the most. The things that we hate the most... The, the list of vices, as it is called, that we read about here, that all of the horrible, terrible things that happen, all of the bad behavior that's produced that Paul lists off in Romans is the result of the things that we love the most, the passions that we want to pursue, that we want to be able to be dedicated to and devoted to. So in some ways, in some weird, twisted, strange way, rather than the way that God intended, which is that we would look at the beauty of creation and we would trace that so easily and naturally back to the creator, it's almost as though the best way forward is to look sometimes at, at the mess of creation and to trace that back and say, how can we understand and explain how we maybe have gotten to where we are today. The great news of the Bible, of the gospel, is that tracing back along either of those will ultimately lead you to the truth of God. So the first thing we read here is that God gave them up to these dishonorable passions that people had. And just like letting go of the boat and letting it drift down the stream, there are going to be significant consequences of that. He then goes into a very specific detail on what that looked like here. <coughs> he says, For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women. So he immediately goes to the example of homosexuality. He goes to the example of people taking something that he is describing as unnatural and ultimately calling that thing natural. Now, uh, the question when we read Romans 1, the end of Romans 1 here, is not a question. The question that we can't really honestly ask is, does the Bible speak to homosexuality? Because, uh, I mean, we can ask that question, but the answer is fairly clear as we read a passage like this. The Bible does speak to it. The Bible speaks fairly clearly to it and about it. Uh, really, the question, if anything, that we ask as we try to interpret it is, is there any reason at all that we have that we should go and look at what the Bible says about something like homosexuality in a passage like this and question the, the relevance of that thing today? Based on the context and the understanding of the circumstances they were in and everything else going on, is there any reason why something that the Bible says may not really be as clear as it sounds or may not really apply in the way that it did at one point before? 
That is a very important question for us to ask because there are, uh, there's a big disconnect in terms of the length of time between now and the time that this was written. These are written in different cultures with different situations and things going on. And so it is very wise, it is very important to take what we read about in the Bible, written to a group of people, and to ask ourselves, what ultimately was this, this author communicating to these people about the universal truth of God for the church, no matter where they are, no matter what is happening? And when we apply that to this passage and we look at what it is and we understand what was happening in Rome at the time, it really doesn't change the fact that Paul is fairly clearly saying that in the same way that we are to look in the world and go, it is natural to us that there is a God and a creator of this. And for us to not see that is in some way for us to deny what is evident. He says in the very same way, it is natural to see a man with a woman, and it is not natural to see a man with a man or a woman with a woman. And so because of that, He's saying this is one of the most basic examples of what it would look like for people to redefine that very word, which is natural. Paul is using this example because it's an example that will be very easy for everyone to understand. He's not using it as an example because everyone that he's writing to agrees with it. Remember, the the church uh, that's being written to at the time is mostly Gentiles. It's not mostly Jewish people anymore. These are people who did not grow up in the Jewish faith. One of the interesting things about this passage, and it means something very significant, is that at no point in this passage does Paul mention the law. At no point in this passage does Paul say, appeal back to something that God said to even just the Israelite people in talking about the way that they were to live as a nation. Why is that significant? Because Paul's not talking just about the standards of the Jewish people. He's not talking about the way everybody knows God wanted us to live before. He is looking at the world in which the church in Rome lives that day. A world in which great, tremendous achievement and accomplishment has happened. And he is identifying something that is a very real and present thing, even in the world in which we live today, which is this. As man, God has said, I I let you go to the passions that you have, that ultimately as people, uh, as we uh, do better, as we create more, as we are even able to accomplish greater and greater things, That what it seems to do is it seems to lead people to this place of believing now that because we have done these great things that we've done, because a Roman leader can step back and look at the Roman Empire and say, look at all of what we have done. Look at what we have accomplished. This bathhouse that I'm sitting in has hot and cold faucet water running. That is a big deal at the time. That is like, you know, uh, rockets that land after they've taken off and don't explode. That is like that big of a deal back then. And when these things happen and we see how our efforts have led to these great accomplishments, that it is absolutely natural for people to say, we are a lot better than we used to give ourselves credit for. And because we are better than we probably were before, because we have done better and learned more and achieved more and grown beyond the things that held us back in the past, then doesn't that naturally mean that the things that we desire, our very passions, are good. This was what the Roman people believed. 
And sexual ethics had become a very big, well, they had become almost non-existent in the Roman Empire, especially amongst the upper-class people. The reason for that was not because they believed that this somehow led to a better society. It was because people simply believed that one of the most backwards and ridiculous things that you could say is that any deity, any god, or anyone should or would care about the things that you did and the people that you slept with. It is to that group that Paul is speaking and he is saying this clear thing to them. The first thing that he says to them that we already talked about is that God has given us to our passions. He has said, here, you now belong to these things. The second thing that we see here is what happens when we do that. And what happens when we do that is as we live in that place, what is natural And what is unnatural, according to Paul, are now redefined. As we live in that place, the very idea of what is right and what is normal and the way things should be is changing to such a degree that we cannot even agree on what is natural. And there's a reason that Paul uses these words, and there's a reason these words still strike a chord with us today and our society today. It is because if you want to get in an argument with someone that you will not win and they will not win, but both will probably lose in many ways. Debate the concept of what is natural. Debate the concept of the way things just inherently should be. The result of this handing over, Paul immediately goes to this example is that our identities will no longer be rooted in that which is natural. That our identities as people will now begin to be rooted in that which Paul says is unnatural. There is a stark difference between uh, doing things that we know to be wrong and, and ultimately just still doing them and actually redefining very things. And this is ultimately what would happen as a result. And this is what Paul is trying to unpack and explain and lay out for the people here. We have a lot of ideas about identity, about what it means for me to be me. And living in the world in which we do today, uh, there is nothing more significant that shapes us than this concept of identity, being who I am supposed to be. But the question is, what shapes the identity of a person? What makes you, you, and what makes me, me? The reason why this is so important, understanding the role that identity plays in how we see ourselves as Christians, understanding the role that even the idea of natural versus unnatural play is that if you have, if you have talked with pro- probably everyone in this room, at the very least, has a, a family member or a close friend or people that you know well who are gay, who, who struggle with homosexuality today. And if you've talked with them and heard their story and what it is like for them in that, in that whole journey, you would hear not something that is unnatural. You would hear that coming out to those around them, finally embracing this thing about themselves, is the most natural thing that they have possibly ever done. And this is where we find the tension. 
is that how do we walk through things like this with one another when it seems that the very idea of what is natural is something that we don't know how to agree on. We don't know how to be on the same page of. When a, a person can say, and I, and I believe as I've talked to people with absolute 100% sincerity, that they would say, this is the most natural that I feel that I've ever been able to be and live in my life. I don't believe that's an untrue statement. But what Paul says to this is he says that it is not that word, but it is what, uh, what that word means. It is how that concept has been shaped and how that has even been distorted. And what do we ultimately do with that? The burden for Christians when it comes to identity is not ultimately to learn more about ourselves and to become better at being ourselves. The burden for Christians when it comes to identity is not self-empowerment and self-enlightenment and self-awareness. This is not ultimately the burden of identity for a person who is in Christ. The burden of identity for a person who is in Christ is to renew our mind so that men and women begin to see themselves in light of who God has revealed himself to be. What it means to be me in Christ is to be renewed in my mind, first and foremost, before anything else, to be conformed to the likeness of Christ. And there is a huge difference between that and the idea of um, of self awareness, of embracing exactly who I am without Christ or without God or anything else added in. One of the things that you recognize about identity is that it's a really big deal. We put a lot, as Matt was talking last week about idols, what he was talking about was our identities. He was talking about the things that we look to for our hope, the things that we look to for our very value and purpose, and even our salvation, if we were self-aware enough to admit it, that are not in God himself. And how that is not just something that some people do, but the reason that we're talking about it, the reason it is in God's word, is because it is something that all of us struggle with and are prone to. In the very same way, the question for us is, are we able to look at God's word and what it says and allow our identity to be shaped by that thing as we're conformed to the likeness of Christ? Or is it something else? What James would tell us is that if, if, it is, if it is only the very things internally that drive our passion and our desire, then ultimately those things battle within us and they don't lead us to a clear point down at the end of a road. It is not a clear or an easy path. He talks about what happens as a result of this idea of because God has released Uh, the very idea of what is natural changing and being sort of distorted, and then what ultimately happens further down the path, down the stream of this thing. It says, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, 
inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. This is not a comprehensive list. It's called a vice list. And a vice list in the Bible really is just as a person is sort of caught up in the argument they're making, they just start throwing out all of the evils that they can think of, whether it's the stuff he's been dealing with with the people in his life, whether it's the stuff the Roman church is dealing with. Uh, There are many different vice lists, but there's all different kinds of things listed out here. Many of them are really big, major things that some of us would probably never admit to doing, even if we did them. Other things are things that people do constantly. People do almost as a course of action every day, and we just sort of accept as like the little bad things that we do. Disobedient to parents. That one gets all of us at some point. As he's listing all these things out, Paul is ultimately saying uh, these things happen to the degree that they do because of this thing where God has given us over to the passions that we have. So if ultimately what Paul is saying here is a pretty clear and pretty strong argument point, he's basically saying that we have to redefine what is ultimately natural and what ultimately (coughs) our passions are supposed to be. That we need to keep those things, hold them loosely, and ask the question of what does God say that these things are for me? You see... A Christian who would look at this passage and look at what Paul says about homosexuality here, uh, who maybe has a person in their life who is struggling with that and is saying, what do I want for that person? How do I want someone like uh, in that position, that situation to be reshaped or reformed by this? It is very, very simple, right? It is, well, I would want for a person to be able to see God's truth and to be able to say, I choose this over this. You'd say it's that simple. Right? If it's a question of authority, if it's a question of if God is ultimately an authority, if ultimately I am going to ever look at the Bible, look at God's word and say, if it tells me what truth is, I either take that or I don't. Do we have any idea how high of an expectation that is to place on a person? To think that a human being would sit down, open up God's word, encounter something that ultimately calls them to change or go in a different direction from what feels completely natural and good simply because God's word says it. Do we have any idea how high of a standard that is to place on a person? You might be sitting there going, no, that's not a very high standard to place on a person. If you don't think that's a high standard to place on a person, you maybe haven't spent a whole lot of time around a lot of people who claim that God's word is an authority in their life. You see, it's pretty easy for us to look at other people, right, and go, why are they doing that? To look at the idols that exist in other people's lives, to look at areas where we don't think that other people's lives are lining up with the truth of what we see in God's word. And to say, man, oh man, I really hope at some point this person's able to really just see what's there and really submit to that thing or be changed by that thing. And as we often do that, most of the people, I can say, with pretty high degree of confidence, who have thought that to themselves, who have said that to themselves about other people, are people who are not 
willing to do that themselves. Why did Jesus say that thing about the plank in the person's eye? Jesus wasn't saying that people aren't doing things that are wrong. Jesus was saying, you may not realize how easy it is for you to expect someone to uh, reevaluate some of the things that they hold the most true and dear in their lives simply because they encounter truth in God's word that's different, and you are not yourself willing to do that. We often feel as Christians in, in the world in which we live today that we have to we have to sort of choose. Either we say that what, uh, what is ultimately natural and ultimately what is good and right is what, is, is what God tells us in the Bible is good and natural and right, or we have to choose to love people, or we have to choose to care for people, be gracious for people. We often feel as though we have to make that choice. And even if you're like, I'm not sure about that, go out and try to love people and try to be gracious towards people and see if you do not feel that there is a tension there between those two things. There's a reason he says, though they knew God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. What he's talking about is the difference. He actually seems pretty clearly to be implying here that it may actually be worse to say that a thing is good that is not good than to even do the thing yourself. Now, I don't think it ends up being very constructive for us to spend a lot of time talking about things that are worse than other things because it does sort of start to feel like splitting hairs. The question is this. If we are people who are at all serious about others looking at God's word and truly allowing God's word to shape the way that they would live, the question that we ask ourselves is this, is that something that I'm really interested in doing myself? And if you're sitting here going, why on earth would you ask that? Of course I'm interested in doing that myself. I would say, chances are, you aren't as interested in doing that as you think. When you encounter something in God's word that fundamentally challenges something you hold so dear, Maybe something you're passionate about. Maybe something that is a significant part of the way that you see yourself. Are you able to, in humility, allow God's word to do what we read about in Hebrews chapter 4 that says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's word hurts because it ultimately does say what is true about each and every one of us. And that is that none of us are safe from it. That while it brings us life, it also brings us uh, purity and holiness through what is true. Am I willing to look at the Word of God, and when it confronts me, am I willing to allow it to divide, to begin to divide the things in my heart and in my life 
to be willing to cut out some of the things that are not supposed to be there so that the things that are supposed to be there can grow and can thrive and can be healthy. No one wants to go through surgery. No one wants to go through that kind of process. It is a painful, difficult, scary process. It is easy for us to call out inconsistencies in others. It's easy to point to others and say, look at this thing and look at what God's word might say about this thing. And perhaps there, there is no better example of that than homosexuality in the church, in the Christian church today. It seems so easy to say, especially to say, well, if this isn't, a, if this isn't something that I personally deal with that I struggle with, then to simply look at anybody who does and say, uh, man, I, 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 I'm, I'm disappointed that more people in the world in which we live aren't willing to allow God's word to dictate what is natural or what is true. How easy it is and has been in the past to use passages like this as clubs over the head of people, as ways of judging people, as ways of believing that we are ourselves better as though, as though the way that I go about living my life is so much more natural than others. The only thing that makes it natural is when I and willing to encounter God's word, and when it challenges the things that are in my life, I'm willing to go under the knife. And I'm willing to say, will I allow this thing to divide as the word of God does? That when I read passages in scripture that say, you have to be humble, you're supposed to be humble, and I'm like, no, but I'm really awesome, and I've done really great things, and people really like, it's important, listen, listen, for the sake of all of us, I should be on a pedestal for the, sake of, for the sake of everybody, I should be given more uh, authority, leadership, ability. For the sake of everyone, these people need to just listen to me and, and, and not worry about anything they want to do, right? How easy it is for so many in our world to say, no, but seriously though, like objectively, God has made me better than other people. And, and this humility stuff and this grace stuff, graciousness stuff and this gentleness stuff, that's for other people, right? No, it's not. It's for you. It's for you, and you're supposed to read that and go, man, I got to be humble, and I got to learn about grace, and I got to realize that I'm not as great as I think I am. Boy, that challenges everything I want to see in myself about the way that I relate to people in the world, especially if I've been at all successful in this world with other people. But how easy would it be for me to walk away from that and go, well, I don't know. I mean, I'm not really sure that's like something for me. When we get to Romans 13... And it starts talking to us about submitting to governing authorities. <laughs> Are we able to read that? That thing that Paul wrote to the people living in the Roman Empire, which was like totally, totally, totally crazy to live in if you're a Christian, and said, submit to governing authorities and trust that God will take care of you. Can we really read that and go, oh man, it's the last thing I want to do. But you know what? I got to go under the knife. I've got to let God's work, word do the work that it must do in me. When Jesus talks about the plank in the eye and looking at others, what Jesus is talking about is that we are not given the responsibility by God to go and to change the way that other people live. We are called to love people, to be gracious towards people, and we are called to, in our own lives, 
ask, how is it that I can as closely be aligned to what God's Word says about what is true and what is right and what is natural? It's hard to not redefine those things as they are redefined everywhere else around us. It is so hard to not do that. But that is also an incredibly important reason why in the church (coughs) we have to not redefine those things. It's important for us when we see these things that Paul talks about that that we say this is what it does say, as hard as that may be for so many of us. It doesn't mean that we're not people of love. It does not mean that we are not people of grace. And it does not mean that we are not people who should wish and hope that we were surrounded by people who do not necessarily agree with our definition of what is good or what is natural or what is right. Because that's where God has called us. Listen, the truth of the matter is, If you are at all serious about, at all serious about being shaped by God's word, like really serious at all, at all about the idea of the authority of God meaning something, when you look in his word and you encounter something and you go, this is not the way or who I am right now, but this is the way that I need to be, the way that I must be. If you are at all serious about that, and you would all begin to pursue that, then it is not long until you begin to realize that you are not capable of doing it completely. You are not capable of of allowing God's word to shape you perfectly into who he intends for you to be. We are not capable of doing that thing. It is really, really hard. It takes some of us years for a single thing And I don't know if you plot it out on how long most people live. We live long now. We live pretty long, but we don't live that long. Maybe that's why people lived for hundreds of years before. It's like you work on a thing every 10 years, then eventually you get to them or something. The fact of the matter is that if we look in God's word and we encounter things and we say, if I'm honest and if I'm real here, that is not me. That is not how I feel that does not even necessarily seem right. But I trust that God is in any way the authority, that he is my author and my creator. And because I know that the only hope, real hope that I could ever have is life in the one who created me, the one who made me, the one who loves me regardless of what state I am or who I am or what I'm able to live out or not live out. Because of the hope that is in that thing, I want him And what he says is good and right. But the moment I begin to walk down the path of pursuing that, I begin to realize just how hard it is and just how incapable of that that I am. That is why the good news of the gospel is the good news of the gospel. I'm not trying to ruin the ending or anything. We're probably going to have to talk about the ending every week. Because like I said, this first part of Romans, it's kind of a downer. It's a lot of talking about some of the wreckage that we see in the world around us, but really the state of all of our hearts. And is there, there is nothing better than the good news that you don't have to be fully capable of opening the Bible and doing everything it says. You won't be. But you still should care. And you still should want to. And so the only way that you don't walk away sad and miserable and defeated or walk away redefining everything so that you can feel free and good in the end 
is to have a hope in Jesus because he is the one who actually makes you right with God. He is the reason that you can wake up and you can encounter God's word and you can say, even though I know that I'm not all of this says that I am to be, that God still loves me, I'm still his child, and that when we sing about how good God is, that I really do live in the power and the light of that thing because of how good God is. Why do we get to experience the goodness of God? Not because any of us are better at doing or living out anything that's in this, this book. We experience the goodness and the life and the grace of God because of the power of the gospel, which means that what we are called to do in this world is to go to each other with the power of the gospel and the message of the gospel first and foremost before anything else. And we are called to do the very same thing with others. The good news about this is that what Paul is not going to say to the church, what he doesn't say to anybody in any church, is guys... Your job is to go and change all of what you're seeing around you, and your job is to go and fix the way that people see things and the way that people disagree with you on things. What he's saying is that you are to be a people who bring the good news of the hope of Jesus because that transforms hearts and that transforms lives. Let's pray. God, I feel such a weight talking about a passage like this because I know I know how hard it is for us to truly allow you your word to be the authority in our lives. It really, really is really hard. That it's not even a matter of being in church for a long time or, 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 or studying or learning more about your word and knowing how to interpret it better, and that's somehow making it easier for us to let be the authority in our lives. It doesn't work that way. It continues to be hard because it continues to shape us because the process of that is very much like a sharp sword slicing away the things, a sharp sword slicing away the things that are not good and leaving the things that are. God, when we're honest, we must confess that we, um, we often do not approach your word with that goal, with that intent, asking for it to shape us, asking for it to redefine the very meaning of what is natural for us. We instead often come to your word hoping that it reinforces our passions, hoping that it reinforces the things that we like about ourselves and the way that we want the world to be. Father, would you give us uh, the humility to just be able to see clearly what you say so that we can begin to wrestle with it, Lord? Would you overwhelm us with the love um, that you have for us and the good news of your gospel. Because if we don't have that, we will walk away and never try, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen.